0: fellow earthlings and welcome to the Big Chew podcast. I'm your host Maria Stockmiller. Here at the Big Chew, one way or the other we get around to asking that question, how do we live on earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite, let's masticate. Twenty-three percent of Americans, and way more Europeans, are nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They don't identify with any religion. James Nagel is studying these nuns. As a kid, he was his Catholic mother's worst nightmare. He was a tattooed, pierced skateboarder who rode a motorcycle and wouldn't go to church. Then after college, he entered the seminary to become a Franciscan priest before leaving his religion and the Franciscans. Ten years of teaching religious studies in diverse urban high schools showed him how younger people raised with different religions or none were questioning religious tradition. He became deeply interested in people who were leaving religion for religious reasons. James is now finishing his doctorate at Fordham University, researching deconversion and alternative religious identities. We talk about the swelling movement away from religion, where deconverts or nuns are finding meaning and how that could change what we consider religion to be. Is it time to retire the God word? Are standard religious stories toast? Stick around. so let's talk about deconversion. Okay. What, what do you consider deconversion? I have to say that this term is kind of new to me Mm -hmm. and I had only heard it in Protestant contexts before, Mm -hmm. like evangelicals who Mm -hmm. had, um, gone down the bunny hole, but, um, Mm -hmm. but you come from the Catholic tradition, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. So deconversion is definitely a a, a new term in, in the, the kind of literatures and what it's what the the kind of original users of it, one of which was John Barber, was trying to do was kind of kind of borrow from a much more positive spin or an approach to conversion to this growing more and more popular alternative trajectory of people leaving um, inherited traditions, but also bringing that kind of positive view of it, uh, recognizing that in and of itself it might be religiously significant. That like conversion, it's also a, a reflective process. So that's you know that's. That's kind of like the broad, broad stroke of, of what I think of as, as deconversion, and of course it involves elements like conversion of oftentimes some kind of intellectual curiosity, intellectual questioning, some kind of concern of, about ethics, and also sometimes a, a real dissonance or disconnection theologically. Someone might recognize, well, gosh, what I've been taught about the image and nature of God is this, but then later on down the you know the kind of train of the theological system, you know, the, we're supposed to do this or, you know, treat certain people this way. Well, those two, those two things don't, aren't consistent. So that distance requires or, you know, provokes some kind of reflection in a process that can involve this kind of trajectory or a movement from what was a certain fixed and known point in a religious identity to something new that, sh- that might be outside the boundaries or a lot closer to that boundary than the, the starting point.
0: Now, what kind of drove your interest in this? Was this an experience that you had yourself? Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: well, certainly a little bit of both. I, I would certainly identify myself as a, a deconvert who's kind of gone through that, that movement uh, for sure. Um, and also, I, I think even, even beyond that, or certainly connected to that, I think it's just the community that I come from and still, and still feel responsible to, and a, a community that I think... Is somewhat left out um, of this kind of larger inter-religious or inter-irreligious conversation. Um, as I mentioned I started my undergrad in comparative religion and I often joke and it's not that much of a joke that I really started studying theology and religious studies to argue with religious people because at that point I had had a pretty negative experience of religion so I, I just wanted to learn enough of the vocabulary and the system to, so I could have the language to, to challenge people that I had felt so challenged and belittled by on their own grounds in some ways, because I guess I had some intuition of, gosh, I, th- th- I think there might be something to these meaning systems and uh, wisdom traditions, but gosh, the people teaching it to me as a child just are, 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 are missing something. So that started maybe a an intellectual conversion, which was followed by more than an intellectual conversion, uh, where I ended up certainly identifying and as a Catholic and going to seminary and thinking I was going to be a, a Franciscan for you know the rest of my professional and vocational life. Um, well,
0: hang on just a second. Yeah, <laughs> you went to the seminary. Yes. So you said you said earlier that you felt you felt a responsibility to this community that you were a part of mm-hmm. and that you felt wasn't representative. So what what community is that that you felt was not getting represented? Sure, to kind of
1: for lack of a better, you know, kind of category, category title, it's like the un, the unchurched, uh, the, the religious nuns, or what they often talk about now. I certainly have always kind of come from that that group that for intellectual reasons or even just personality reasons always felt a little different than certain, you know, maybe in their family or in their communities. So always people kind of on that, that fringe. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I grew up, you know, doing all the activities involved in that kind of, Fringe community. I was a skateboarder. I mean, at, at, at some point in this journey, I, I've I became my mom's worst nightmare. I didn't go to church. I had tattoos. I had a motorcycle. I mean, like that's you know t- to kind of jokingly kind of give some kind of image of what that community is. I'm talking about. Okay. A, a community that's you know has often been seen as you know outside the boundaries of appropriate behavior or mainstream. Um, what's good?
0: So you. You planned to be a Franciscan. Mm-hmm. And how old were you when, when you were in the seminary?
1: So I went to I went to seminary when I was 23 and ended up doing a academic master's degree there instead of the MDiv because I would discerned to enter the order afterwards. So then joined the Franciscans as a postulant when I was 25 and was there until I was 27. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So you were there for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. And with, with an ethic or at least an aesthetic that to many people is far more congenial or at least a known quantity than a lot of religious orders, you know, P- Francis is such a popular figure and, mm-hmm. you know, you can almost, under I can understand someone wanting to be a Franciscan or a Jesuit, you know, mm-hmm. and like, I've known Jesuit priests who kind of wish they could just be Jesuits without being Catholic, mm-hmm. but. <laughs>
1: they, they both occupy that kind of edgy place in the Catholic, you know, tradition for sure.
0: Right. And so, then, what what convinced you that you weren't going to be doing that? Was that that's, part of your deconversion, or
1: sure, yeah, def, definitely. That's the most recent, you know, I, I think uh, episode or chapter in that deconversion, which is an interesting one. It's still something that I'm, you know, maybe processing in my own academic research and to continue to process in my own, you know, personal life. You know, I, I still identify as Catholic, but how, how I, you know. Explain it to people now is that I identify myself or situate myself on the outskirts, when I, and I, when I say outskirts, I, that I, that's distinct from me from the the margins of Catholicism. It's somewhat outside, but close enough that I'm still using that system and that tradition. I guess what what prompted me to leave the Franciscans was, and the best way I've I've found to kind of explain it was. You know, I, I, many people might identify with this. Some not, but you know, in a in a romantic uh, relationship where something something changes in the terms of that relationship, or and although you might want to stay, uh, but something has changed so much so that it feels like a little out of out of integrity to stay. So I'm I'm still trying to figure out what to put my finger on what exactly what that was that changed in terms of my vocation, and it was so going in. I was so moved and taken by this kind of deepened view of what the Catholic tradition could be and ought to be, and certainly has threads of in its tradition. I've, I found myself really desiring to not just study this, but be this in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and something about that certainly changed—not in my my attraction to and respect and appreciation for those those threads in the tradition, but I mean, I, I think it just comes to, it might not have been my vocation. You know, it was maybe mm-hmm. my, my temporary vocation to kind of study that, to kind of form myself in that style of living and that charism, to use a Catholic word. But then well, maybe this this um, this particular expression of that vocation and, and the habits with the vows might not be mine. And to add to that just some of my, you know, the initial... Um, resistance and rebellion to um, institutional authority may have been a part of that as well, which was certainly not there a lot in my particular community and order, but I certainly felt the pressure of, oh gosh, now I'm going to be a representative of this institution that I am highly critical of mm-hmm. because I, I do love it and I think it should exist, but I sure hope and think it could and ought to be better. So I think that was part of the, the tension as, as, as well. So I, I ended up Going through that process of and movement that took me out of that community and you know the, to the outskirts, as I as I said it as a as a teacher, as a teacher of of the tradition.
0: Were were you going to be a brother or a priest?
1: I was I was on the track to be a priest. That's that's what I was thinking I was I was called to do, but it's interesting mm-hmm. it's going to talk about the, the institutional versus some kind of larger or, or different source of authority. I was not I did not feel called to the, the traditional sacramental ministry which most men in this case are you know attracted to or want in terms of that ordained ministry. If if anything, I I was really attracted to the the Sacrament of Reconciliation. I I I that that was something that that made sense to me uh, in terms of the tradition. I, I, I did not want to be the traditional pastor. I wanted to be, you know, maybe a more, what, what I saw as traditional, traditional Franciscan being that, you know, a, a representative of this religious tradition in places that you least expect, you know, living and working in communities like I come from, as I mentioned, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of fringe group. So that's, that's what I, I felt called to at that point. I want, I want to be this in places you least expect.
0: And for people who were not raised Catholic, uh, reconciliation—or people who were confession. <laughs> yeah. Reconciliation is confession, and people, people so often misunderstand that. They think you can mm. just walk in and confess your sins, and you're good to go. They don't mm-hmm. realize that it's a it's a more complex mm-hmm. undertaking than that. But so it sounds as if. Um, you were really looking to the Franciscan tradition to go to the edges, to go to places mm-hmm. where other people w- wouldn't necessarily be going. Mm-hmm. So then when you, when you taught School, were you teaching in Catholic schools? I take it, teaching religion.
1: Yes, primarily, I, I also worked in a few public schools and alternative schools. All the schools I worked in were always, you know, quote unquote, alternative um, and working in urban settings. So, even the, the Catholic schools I taught in were a Cristo Ray school. Were what? Uh, a Cristo Ray school was already, actually started by the, the Jesuits. It's a uh, the name of the model or um, of the school is Crystal Ray. So they're Catholic prep schools um, with a, kind of a cap on families' family's income, students and families that, you know, wouldn't ha- typically have access to them. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a, still a, a great model. And, and a, lot, a lot of people would say it's how, it's what Catholic schools should be rather than the, you know, elite prep schools that
0: often they are. Were there certain things that you felt you couldn't, Teach them based that you based on the fact that you were yourself kind of on the fringes. Were there were, were there certain ideas that just didn't make sense to you in Catholicism, and that you didn't think that the the thing I'm thinking of, for example, is original sin.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I remember being at the Vatican at the Pontifical North American College,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: talking to seminarians there. And saying to asking them, okay, so knowing what we know about evolution, what was the first sin? Who committed it? And and how did anyone know? Mm-hmm. Was it some Australopithecine in the Olduvai Gorge? What's the story? And mm-hmm. so these two guys, I mean, this was like the creme de la creme, uh, and these two very well-educated guys once said, well, you know, now I forget where I read this, but uh, man, it was always man, Mm -hmm. man's first act when he was ensouled was a sinful act. And he took Mm. something in his hand and he raised it up, a stick or a rock or something, and he brought it down on somebody else's head. And that was the first sin. And the other guy says, um, hey, Ray, uh, I think you're thinking of 2001, A Space Odyssey.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't able to fit that story into the scientific canon either. Mm-hmm. So, Which is a long-winded way of, of asking, what kinds of things did you feel less comfortable teaching?
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I think that's a, a great example, just that that kind of tension, just as you pointed out, it doesn't fit with your, with your view, I think, the, the gift of um, teaching high school. And, and maybe this might even be play into, you know, this larger story of my own development and certainly my research interest. You know, my students weren't having it either. I, I think, you know, whether their exposure to science, their exposure to different religious systems, you know, some of those, you know, really, really theologically problematic Teachings or doctrines like original sin, which I mean, even within the tradition, it's been questioned and challenged for hundreds of years. But what I appreciated, I, I one, I think my my school gave me a lot of freedom. But I think just as an educator, I chose to read the context, and meaning by that I mean the lives of my students. And in the particular Catholic school that I taught the most in, my class was diverse. The the it was a Catholic minority. Most of my students were faring denominations of Christian, I had Muslims, I had Hindus, and I had n- nothing in particular. So for me, teaching, you know, even a relatively hard line or just teaching them how to be Catholic didn't seem appropriate or relevant or valuable um, for their lives. So, you know, something like Original Sin, I, I remember, you know, presenting that the, the biblical story in Genesis of Adam and Eve and giving them kind of an over-the-weekend assignment, all right, on Monday, I want you to write up three hundred words about what you think the first sin is. But don't you dare tell me it was eating the fruit, because I eat fruit all the time. So forcing them to come back and like, ask, like, there's this story, you know. And again, in the Catholic system, we recognize that it's that story that you know most of the Bible is not even attempting or even pre- presenting itself as historical fact or scientific truth. So we're you know, trying to get a more in- informed reading to kind of suss out what what were these authors trying to say about the human experience or the human condition? So what what is the story saying about something that's kind of a wound or a flaw that's kind of in in the human the human being? So that's that's an example of how I would teach something like that and what, what the students brought, I mean, that's theology. That's that's what still attracts me to the tradition of theology, not teaching answers but questions that continue to drive a tradition forward, always responding to the actual world and lives that we're living.
0: So, what kinds of responses did they have? What did they think was mm-hmm. that kind so, of sin?
1: So, so, some would, you know, do their Sunday school teachers proud, and you know, saying that you know the Adam and Eve wanted they they wanted to be God, you know, which mm-hmm. is a somewhat kind of literal translation of or not or lifting of that. And other would others would come back and say. God, they, they didn't seem to be content or accepting of just who they were and
0: mm-hmm.
1: that who they were was enough. That they, There's something about, like the story seemed to be saying, there's something about us that doubts that we're enough just the way we are. And the, the slightest temptation or presentation of, oh, you could be more, that seems to be this kind of, you know, Place of unrest in the human person that causes us to do all types of bad things to kind of fill that, you know, mm-hmm. lack of sense of, of self-worth, which I think is is profound for a, for a teenager to come up with. But at the same time, yeah. it's not not that surprising. Now, teaching high schoolers as long as I have, what I like about that age group is, I mean, developmentally, cognitively, the the philosopher has been born. They they. They do have that capacity to start to think about thinking about thinking and question the things that they've been presented as hard and fast truths, but their lives of you know they they relish the permission to ask these deeper and bigger questions, which are what um, religious or wisdom traditions are made out of of these these kind of questions so
0: I have a question about that point though if if they're saying that the first sin was feeling that they weren't enough, Mm -hmm. isn't that basically what the church says? Isn't that how we come into the world, that we're not enough, we have to be saved?
1: Yes, that's certainly what the church says somewhat about the human condition, that we're we're incomplete without grace. So I think what the students were saying is not that we were incomplete, Incomplete. That that's our self-perception, and in fact, that's mm-hmm. that's that's the flaw that we don't recognize we are enough just the way we are. That there's mm-hmm. it's that kind of misperception of who or misunderstanding of who we are, and that that is that that kind of unrest that causes all the that causes hum, human beings to behave badly is you know trying to fill that space. You know, and and that's that that is one anthropology that can be taken from the story. One one that I. I think is a is a good. It certainly fits with um, certain streams of um, or schools of thought in psychology um, that recognize that that the human human condition is involves that um, dysmorphia or a, a inaccurate view yeah. of itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So, but you know, when you when you talk about different stories and the different interpretations of them it seems, you know, the original sin thing, for one thing, has always stuck mm-hmm. with me. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Augustine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and yet, when you look at, for example, Pope Francis's Laudato mm-hmm. Si, the the environmental statement mm-hmm. that he made, was it last yes. year? Okay, so, um, you know, he still talks about death entering the world Mm -hmm. through original sin and the sin of our first parents and how um, everything on earth changed because Mm -hmm. of that. Um, I don't know. I I really found that. I felt like he was hitting his head up against Mm -hmm. it. He was trying to say that the world was good. We were were part of the world, but he just couldn't Mm -hmm. quite... Just couldn't quite do it.
1: That's a, that one of the things I, I appreciate um, about Francis, and I, and I have a similar. There's a similar tension in everything he says and does. And one one moment you're like, oh yes, but then there's a there's a little bit still of that, you know, not so, not often just a trace element, but still that Catholic tradition, you know, that I still butt my heads against as well. What I think it is, and I, and I think he's somewhat, if if my read on it is is correct. I mean he's doing the best he can navigating a very thin line where he often he'll often say something like I'm a son of the church which I I hear that is right I've inherited this thing as it is there's not a whole lot I can do even in this even in the position I'm at to change this slow moving thing but in questions um certainly the, the questions that are kind of in tension or in play right now he really foregrounds the idea of encounter and dialogue is not, not the church making the decision, but what people, why don't you talk about what family means? You know, I think in, in his visit to the U S recently in front of Congress, mm-hmm. you know, when he was talking about, you know, you kept expecting him to say marriage, which is a loaded term in
0: right. Catholicism,
1: right. but he kept talking about family. And, and he talked about people talking about what it means to be a family. And gosh, if you, if, if you do that in this in this country and in this time, you get a lot of different perspectives on what family means. So if if, if that conversation is now he's pushing outside the walls of tradition and the you know, tradition is supposed to respond to that, that's going to change tradition. And that's you know to bring it back to the, the converts, like he seems to be kind of handing it over to the people outside the boundaries of these traditions, which I think again, if I'm correct. Is is really promising, and I and I and I recognize the fact that yeah, he's he's a son of the church. There's not a whole lot he can do. Like he has to work with things like you know this archaic view of original sin that's passed on through the flesh and you know concupiscence of the of the flesh. Uh-huh. Um, but it takes it a, a huge effort to kind of translate that into something meaningful today. But that's the kind of thing we're still kind of locked right. into. Like that's that's the language and symbolism of the church. But he's separating the significant movements of theology, I think, in religious life, certainly in the Catholic tent, by foregrounding dialogue outside of, of clericalism and giving it to the people themselves, the dialogue about what it means to be family, what it means to be whatever. So I, I think that's promising, but you know, I, I certainly don't think Francis is gonna solve all the problems of, of the Catholic church. Um, I think part of my attraction to deconversion is I. I think, you know, the the church, for example, and I think even just religiousness as we've known it, church as we've known it, you know, whether it's you know also synagogue and mosque, is is going to change. I, I think, in, uh, and involved with that is going to be kind of a shrinking or dwindling, or you know, some people call it a dying. You know, but even even that image is is um, common in religious traditions and texts that. Some things need to die for it to be made anew again. So I I, I do hope and think that, you know, there's something about what's happening right now religiously, particularly outside the boundaries of what's been called religiousness, is, you know, kind of promises or has the potential to really change how we think of religion.
0: About what's happening Mm -hmm. now? You are you doing research on? We referred to the nuns before. We Mm -hmm. didn't mean N-U-N-S. We meant Mm N-O-N-E-S. That was a very discussed category when the Pew Research Group submitted their results to uh, make, of course, keep track of this, mm-hmm. how many people consider themselves affiliated with particular religions or not. And um, so you seem to think that this is a group that has some consistencies mm-hmm. in it, people who have left religion mm-hmm. and are on the margins. How would you describe those consistencies why did they leave mm-hmm. and what are they looking for
1: I think you put your finger on an important question that there's some you know debate over is is it a movement and that is there some is it cohesive enough to call it a movement or is it just you know as critics would say just an example of the rampant individualism and relativism that is you know corrupting you know the, you know american society I, I do think it's somewhat of a, a cohesive movement, and other scholars are, are agreeing. Some of the common elements, um, the one I think is most interesting is among the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, so 23% of the American population, according to Pew, are now nothing in particular um, in terms of religion. And that, that, that group is incredibly diverse in how they identify on, on these different um, tests or surveys whether they're nothing in particular in terms of affiliation, agnostic, and atheist. But in certainly the the little existing research that there is, and that that research is growing, and certainly my own, what I think is really interesting is that even those who might identify as um, agnostic or atheist, talking about their reasons for leaving, it's oftentimes not indifference. Um, It's, how how I often put it, a lot of nuns, anyone he asks, are leaving religion for religious reasons. They, they have, they've been, they've been given, or they've, they've learned, or they've developed a certain sense of ultimate concern, or maybe not ultimate reality, but something that matters most. Like that, that life can involve, or oftentimes does involve, kind of, some kind of system, some kind of lens that we develop to figure out what matters most in our lives. And then once that's developed, and oftentimes, you know, as, as children, we can't help but absorb the cultural milieu that we're raised in, in our families and communities, which often involves a particular religious tradition. But again, when when that does not align
0: mm-hmm.
1: with the lives they're actually living for the, the religious reasons they develop or even learn from, whether it's Catholicism or um, Baptist tradition, when they reach a certain point where it my church's position, my church's view does not live up to this, what matters most in my life that I've, I've actually even learned from that tradition. Well, then I, I, I must leave out, out of almost prophetic critique or a, a prophetic protest. You know, the church does not live, is not living up to the tradition, the values that I think are valuable from it. Um, so they've kind of given up on the a particular source of authority mm-hmm. when it comes to religion, and so they're you know relying on their own, um, or they're you know leaving to find that that type of um, authority when it comes to what matters most somewhere else. I, I, I think that certainly you know the generation X is really most known for this, you know, really kind of sharp criticism and suspicion of religious institutions, um, and it's certainly just part of the kind of postmodern turn to really questioning the construction of all knowledge, you know, recognizing it's always going to be conditioned and have, you know, someone's self-interest involved, um, but not necessarily everyone, and particularly, you know, some communities being left out of that. So. So that's what I think is most interesting, leaving religion for, I mean, again, framing it this way, I know, you know, might rub some people differently, but the idea of leaving religion for religious reasons, what I mean by that is leaving for reasons of ethics, reasons of morality, reasons of what I think matters most in my life and in the world is no longer reflected in, in the religion that I was raised in or the religions in my community, and therefore I, I, I must... I must leave out of out of a sense of my own integrity.
0: But are they, what are they going to? Mm. Are they, like I can tell you from my own experience, mm-hmm. and I left Catholicism a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I wanted to be a, a religious sister, I was extremely devout, um, you know, we had clergy in the family, um, and I... Well, first I read Joseph Campbell when mm. I was a teenager, and that mm-hmm. kind of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know who Joseph Campbell was or what it was I was reading, but it was like, okay, show's over. Mm-hmm. And um, then there were other things that contributed to, uh, you know, opening the exit doors. Mm-hmm. And then, then I started to study it Mm -hmm. kind of from the outside, just academically. And I thought, this isn't really making sense. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to what I had been before I was Catholic, because when I was a tiny child, I had these spiritual experiences in nature. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a rural area and that meant more to me. And... So I just kind of went back to that. And then I, you know, started reading Thomas Berry. Mm-hmm. Um, there was still the question, how do you reverence nature? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you find, you know, and also being wired for ritual, mm-hmm. which I think anyone who's raised Catholic is really wired for mm-hmm. ritual. You know, where do you find that? Mm-hmm. And so then when, you know, I started reading about the evolutionary story, that, that made more sense to me. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm part of this. So that's a big wind up to saying, where where do these people tend to go? Do mm-hmm.
1: you think no, that is again a great question? And that's where it's it's hard to kind of put down any kind of box for for where these deconverts or nuns are ending up. There are you know, there are groups being created. You know, as you talked about, people being certain you know wired for ritual or wired for you know community or desiring of community. So uh, you know, there's. There's a study out of uh, Harvard Divinity School recently called "How We Gather," uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a, it's a list of ten of these. You know, that study is particularly dealing with, looking with, looking at um, where millennials are going, which, according to the Pew Research, are the, is the most unreligious um, generation of of all history. So this this study, "How We Gather," is looking at how these religious nuns and this and this generation are gathering. And they're they're creating these kind of, you know, some would say pseudo church groups. Some would say these aren't like church at all, but they they have certain elements of personal accountability, you know, you know, in the community, some type of shared value system, um, and this idea of improvement, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: developing the self toward a, a better a, a better representation of themselves. So, you know, some you could say that that's, is that religious, is that spiritual, but, you know, things like the Sunday Assembly is an example right. of that. It's an, an, an a, I don't think they use the word atheist anymore. I think originally they, they called themselves a godless congregation or something like that. I think now they talk about, I think their theme is live, live well, wonder more or something, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's just one example. Right. Um, yeah, groups
0: of people, they get together on Sunday, mm-hmm. but they have what lectures or the conversations or someone talks about their experience mm-hmm. or they have a film or something. It's, but it's still people getting together, mm-hmm. I guess.
1: And other things that pop up in the particular that study out of Harvard um, how we gather, I mean, even soul cycle and CrossFit show up on there, as well as some other groups that are more focused on social justice and action in that regard. But.
0: So they go to the gym. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> These two examples of, you know, the, yeah, that's, I, I was surprised, but if, if you can make the case those two things you'll know, fit and in, fit into this you know your question of where do they go i mean the popularity of those two yeah. gyms are certainly you know, we should take notice of because they're they're everywhere if i
0: yeah. i
1: have not participated in them but i certainly have heard people talk about them in kind of a cult like way those, so clearly it's it's more than just a, a gym more than men and women going to lift heavy things that there is this kind of Culture and community that must be part of its, um, that appears to be a part of its pitch, um, and experience that huh. that it fits into this question. How 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 are these nuns mm-hmm. gathering? Here's here's one. There's two examples.
0: Well, I can kind of see. I mean, you learn a lot about yourself mm-hmm. by pushing your mm-hmm. body to the limits, and so I can. And you're doing it with other people. I, mm-hmm. I that's just and it's an interesting uh, interesting mm-hmm. way I mean, to go. You certainly
1: make the correlation with. You know, it sounds like you're. Your kind of natural attraction to nature and the, the things that happen when you put yourself in, in nature. I can see it you know, really kind of, as you said, like really pres- challenging your, your physical body as a, a certain natural presence as well, that you can learn a mm-hmm. lot about yourself and relationship to the world by. Going really deeply in, inward physically, I guess, as well. And just as you can go you have a similar experience by really putting yourself out, they're also challenging your physical body and nature as well. I can I, I, I can see that.
0: Sure. Yeah. Do you think that this is a growing group of people? Do you think that and do you think that they're looking for something that they would be willing to let revived churches provide, mm. or are they just done?
1: That is an excellent question. And I think, you know, While I, I do think this this movement, one, is growing. All the studies, rec- you know, suggest that there's going to be no you know, end to this. Um, and I do think it's somewhat of a, of a cohesive movement that you, we can, and the research, and I certainly am noticing, some shared elements in the stories and experiences and the reasons why. But there's still always going to be a diversity, a pluralism, even a multiplicity of individual experiences and the, and the religious identities as a result of this, which I, I I think seems more truthful to me. The idea of consensus, which so much of religious tradition has been built on and attempts to do in its formation of young people, is, I mean, even, even in a small Catholic community, the idea that everyone in the room believes and feels the same way is... is Irrational. Um, so, I think, I think part of this cohesive movement is is more an acceptance and embrace of the multiplicity that comes with when there should be as many ways to whatever the God or gods of our understanding is. There, there should be as many ways as there are human persons. Right. So, will they will they come back? Is certainly a question. Lots of you know church leadership wants to ask and is only only cares about. I think it's a good question. I, I certainly, in my in my interviews, some hold out some hope, you know. But you know, I'm thinking of one in particular. You know, the the, the way she kind of framed it. She said, ah, "Yeah, maybe I might look for a congregation eventually, but it, I don't want it to be church as I knew it." She kept saying that church as I knew it. So she 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 would really identify positive things in her upbringing, particularly relationships, but she kept, but not church as I knew it. So I think for for that option, for you know some kind of return for some of those to a recognizable church setting, I think church would have to be no longer as they they knew it. Um, but I I I think many are done, and I think they can be done because I think they are finding finding or creating what they felt was lacking in their inherited traditions or inherited or known religious communities. So I think whatever, you know, religious traditions provided in terms of community, in terms of ritual, and in terms of a spiritual relationship or, you know, with um, whatever the god or gods of their understanding or, you know, to even take the god language out, just, you know, the ultimate reality, ultimate concern of their lives. I, th- I think they're finding that in, in their own ways, and I think that's part of what's happening is an acceptance of that, where the, again, like the, the shift of religious authority is no longer, you know, taken for granted that it must be provided by some kind of theological gatekeeper um, or power broker. No, and you know, it's interesting. Like that's that thread is certainly in the Catholic tradition as well. That among the ways, God is supposed to speak to us is not just you know the magisterium and scripture, but it's also our own conscience. So there's there's an example of there's an element of this kind of deconversion that can and should, and I think does feed feed this movement.
0: So let's talk about the G word. Mm. Because when people talk about spiritual beliefs and they return to calling it God, mm-hmm. that seems like such a loaded term. Mm-hmm. And it is fraught with so much imagery, so much bad history, some good history too, but... Why not just move to something mm-hmm. else? Why does it come back to that? And even the term theology, mm-hmm. which was always described to me as God talk, mm-hmm. and obviously when you you know you look at it from the Greek, there's a theos mm-hmm. in there. Well, what if what if there's no theos? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what you know? Do you think that we'll get to a point where people are referring to it as something mm-hmm. else?
1: Well, I think I, I think there's of, of grappling with that right now. It's certainly what's what's challenging for me in this new field and I think other scholars doing that is, is finding the right language to talk about, you know, the religious, non-religious, irreligious milieu that's that's happening. And like I said, there's there's such, such diversity in this this group and this movement. And there's, so there's going to be a difference in um, comfort or preference in terms of language. So I, I think the question of language is, is important not just for how to talk about it, but how to think about it. I think you're right. Language is so reflective um, and important to communication, and communication at a, at a very deep level is what we kind of gather around. I think it's a tough one, you know, because as I said, so much of this movement is drawing upon um, the reserves of you know what what so many people have learned as children. So that's 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 a term that is kind of a common parlance, but I, it is loaded. I think some, something in my own teaching that I end up doing when I write the term God, I put an asterisk instead of the the O to kind of, you know, rem, oh, really? rem, reminiscent of, you know, it's, it's, it's very, I think it's good Jewish tradition and practice that, you know, naming anything, especially, you know, that the idea of ultimate yeah. reality gives you the idea that you have it by the toe and you somehow own it.
0: Like
1: and I, I No vowels. Yeah. Certainly Yodhe Vabe is the pronunciation without the vowels. But so like I think that's that's a good humility that we could maybe interject into whatever the new language is. Like you know, whatever we mean by that term G-O-D certainly is not what that reality actually is. Like no one no one has access to that. We're all we're, we're all kind of stumbling in the dark. You know if you even grant that there is something you know that connects us all, whether it's life itself or you know nothing you know so I think that's one example of trying to change that that's certainly something I do is just kind to of interject that humility into an old old language that that's is still just used out of repetition uh, among many It, but it's a it's a tough question what else uh, in my writing, I, I'll often write the divine or yeah. ultimate, ultimate concern, or ultimate reality, to use Paul Tillich's expression. Yeah. So it's
0: well. He didn't like the he didn't like the god term either, did he? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Recognizing that it was, it was it's divisive, that and as you said, loaded. People have very different experiences of that. In particular, images. You know. Right. You know, some of, some of the images images used and taught and indoctrinated into. Um, Children in particular, I, I, I interview a lot of grown men and women that, when they talk about how God was presented to them as children, it's frightful. I mean, oh yeah, uh, of course you would be terrified of yeah. and of this word. It certainly—I mean—I think I I've lucked out where I certainly have those memories, um, but maybe it was my <laughs> theological education that unpacked that and just realized, oh, that's <laughs> those were. That, that that told that tells us more about the people that held on to or, or reproduced those images than whatever the reality is we're trying to
0: point to. You know, I heard something the other night how oh, what were they talking about? Oh, Elizabeth I of England and mm-hmm. her speech at the, you know, Spanish Armada in 1588 and this mm-hmm. actor was saying that the language was exploding at that time. And of course, it was Shakespeare's time, and he was making up all kinds of words. And it seems to me that this is a time where there's a lot of language because of global exchange, Mm -hmm. because of social media, because of all kinds of things. Rap music, for example, where people are experimenting Mm -hmm. with words. This Mm -hmm. might be a good time to develop some new language Mm -hmm. that um, kind of takes takes off from where where we were and takes us further toward where we want to go mm-hmm. um, I, I encourage anybody <laughs> I have to tell you what, <laughs> what we use in my family uh, My grand, one of my grandfathers was Greek and spoke very broken English
1: mm-hmm. and
0: he would write these letters and postcards to us in kind of stream of consciousness no punctuation, no capitalization and he always said Thank the Cod, so he was always thanking the cod <laughs> <laughs> so, so we always thank the cod, and mm-hmm. you know, for me, as an atheist, when you think of cod, I mean they've done an awful lot for people. Mm-hmm. um cod, if it weren't for cod, you know a lot of our civilization, good or bad, wouldn't be here so i'm I'm very comfortable with thanking the cod.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, I, I, <laughs> and I, I appreciate. I think. I, I think you're right. I think there's we're at, we're at a, a very promising place for all the reasons you mentioned of for new language to be developed. And I think it can and should and probably will involve a certain irreverence to get to a new reverence. Right. You know, I, I think certainly my own my own style, my own story con- contributes to this for sure. That it, that kind of ir- that irreverent reverence is is how certainly I move in the world. So you know I. And I think your allusion to to hip hop as an example of of this I, I think is I think is right on. Like the, that art form really kind of sprang from improvising, Right. Uh, improvising with in, in a context with of, of lacking things and lacking.
0: and of not of being able to say really powerful stuff without people in power knowing what you were yes. saying. Which yes. of course is always the language of the oppressed. You're always going to get that, and and I I think some of it is just brilliant. Uh, but let me ask you. Okay, so uh, do you mind us talking about what what you believe? Sure. Okay, so um, what do you think happen is going to happen when you die?
1: <laughs> going right for the big one. I, you know, I'm I,
0: buying a mushroom suit myself.
1: What do I think happens when I die? I gosh, I can't remember. I sh- my scripture professors would be disappointed. I can't remember exactly. I think it might be in 1 Corinthians. You know, Paul is pressed, you know, with the same question, you know, because, you know, everyone was kind of geared up for, you know, Christ coming in their lifetime, and that was the promise. And all of a sudden, hey, wait, we're, we're, people are dying, and we were told that we weren't going to die.
0: Right.
1: And um, so they're like, what's, what's happening? And Faking I think up. in a, a very in- inspired biblical way, he says, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that the, the language is, you know, when the, the trumpets blare, will will be changed. I think that's that's my best answer. I'll be changed. When mm-hmm. when I die, I'll be changed. That might that might be into worm food. It might be into some more spiritual form. You know, I, I also think of Yoda talking to Luke Skywalker. You know, luminous being, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. I I I don't. I don't think I can or should have an answer to that. Right. I have I have questions, I have thoughts, but I. I, I that's why I like Paul's answer. It's, it's pretty honest. I really don't know, but I think we'll be changed.
0: Do you think there's a judgment involved?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of some, something a formator told me once in terms of judgment. Judgment is something that we humans feel really not comfortable with, but comfortable with in the terms that we, we like doing it.
0: We love uh, doing it.
1: Yeah, but not when it's turned it up. So uh, <laughs> what this form was talking about was this idea of judgment versus mercy. You know, you don't, you don't get to judge if what you want is mercy. So I think it was a way to kind of diffuse this idea or hope that, you know, the meaning of life is I told you so, that some people get to stop at the, stand at the top of the heap when we die and point at the people at the bottom. So I I hope when we're changed there's no judgment it's mercy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Once you're done with your your academic pursuits, uh, I assume you're going to teach at a university level is that your mm-hmm. what you're looking to do?
1: That's that's certainly my my hope and my goal. I really I kind of f- fell into teaching, and I certainly do love it. Uh, mm-hmm. In particular, teaching, again, as I said, it, we're teaching teaching religious studies, the study of not how to be religious in a certain way, but teaching the questions of these traditions that I, I think do reflect, in some ways, what's good about us. I think looking at religious history, you can also see what's ugly about us. But theres I, I do appreciate and affirm some of the, the tradition, you know, when I say theology, what I what I think of the, the theological tradition is is this kind of always it's an ongoing conversation that really once once you get into it a certain degree, recognizing that everything is is up for debate and questioning always has and always will be. So I I hope to teach that. Like I said, I really liked teaching that at the high school level because I think it's so rare for young people to get access to that
0: mm-hmm.
1: level. Oh, you mean. I don't have to just take someone else's word for it, someone else's right. authority for this. I, so I guess my, my hope and goal was to, is to continue to do that. I, I guess one of my dream jobs was to be to, would be to, to do that in a, in a public institution. Uh-huh. So I, certainly in, in Europe, that kind of compulsory religious education or study of religion is just part of public education. I think it's done well. It could, it could really be a, uh, a beneficial thing in this country as well.
0: Well, I think it's good to know where our ethics, whatever came from, mm-hmm. uh, what helped develop them, and you know the more literate you can be about the questions that people have asked True. for many, many years, uh, I probably the better off you are. but mm-hmm. who, what would you say to someone who said, okay, maybe Christianity's just done mm-hmm. you know if if in fact, we don't need, redemption, mm-hmm. if that's kind of relative. And of mm-hmm. course, that goes way back anyway mm-hmm. to what Augustine and Pelagius. And mm-hmm. then if we don't really need that, mm-hmm. and if Christianity has had 2,000 years to get it right, and it hasn't worked out so well, mm-hmm. which I think you could make a strong case for saying... Sure. Uh, why continue mm-hmm. why not just I mean okay churches have the real estate they've got the tax deductions they've got uh-huh. the structure they've got the institutional structure that helps people come together and in good ways helps them do good things for for other people but why especially given what we're learning about animal ethics and mm-hmm. animal intelligence maybe it's just in us and maybe that's what we look for mm-hmm. What do you think people say? Well, maybe this was, this, we're just done with this. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, my, my first response is I, I think we would be done with it, or a certain, you know, certainly Christianity as we know it would be done if it hadn't been for the kind of historical accident of Christendom. As you said, you know, the Catholic Church in particular was able to amass this wealth. You know, the Catholic Constantine. Is, yeah. The Catholic Church would not be able to exist. As it is today, just by the dollars people are putting in on Sundays, so um, you know the, the level of participation and the trust is is not there. So it's able, it's continuing now on on that kind of historical accident where, you know that was able to amass such wealth. So a, I think it's certainly weak, and you know, and the question of should we just be done? I I think we might be. I think I think the people will you know decide that in some degree. Certainly, a lot of you know the. Secularism—that idea—eventually, um, as, as we advanced in science and reason and whatnot, that religion would diminish to the point of um, erasure. So uh, that that idea is is being questioned now, because you know, while there's been some movement in that direction, religion is not dying completely. It's changing. One could look at you know, the the growth of the nuns and deconversion as one example of that. You know. If, I can't remember which law of thermodynamics it is, that you know, energy does not disappear, it, you know, it continues in right. form. So I, I think, I do think, you know, the religions as we know it might be done, um, but they'll be, they'll continue in these different forms, and I think that's, you know, right now what I think might be the death knell, or certainly, you know, those traditions are really resisting that reality. Uh, yeah. I think that's driving people more and more out. But what's interesting...
0: Yeah, they're circling the wagons, definitely.
1: Oh, yeah, no, definitely. But I think what's interesting is that people that are leaving are taking aspects of the tradition, what they think is the best aspects of the tradition, and, and adapting them and modifying them or, and drawing from different sources, not just Western sources, not just religious sources, to kind of develop these new new, new ways of, of holding our, our lives together and, and creating community. So I think I'm certainly open to the possibility of religion as we know it dying maybe yeah or certainly certainly changing yeah something you said that interested me that, that that question of you know redemption you know is you know do we do we need that anymore? And that going so far back, it just made me think of you know maybe maybe even a, a reason why I was so attracted and still attracted to a, a certain aspect of the Franciscan tradition. So it's certainly been a minority report in the, the Catholic tradition. But one of the things that the Franciscan school of thought or, ter- or um, charism challenged was this idea, um, the idea that you know God did not do what God did in the world, in particular the. the Christ event because there was something wrong with us and we needed to be redeemed. That's just who God is. It, there was no original sin that caused God's, you know, wanting to save us. We're just in relationship with whatever God is, you know, so that that's a real significant challenge to what the whole thing is kind of built on. There's something wrong with you. You need us to save us. Oh, no, actually just the, like, we're fine. What, whatever God is... Did what does what God does, just because?
0: Well, I think I would find that more convincing if it weren't for all the crucifixes around. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and in the Franciscan tradition too. I mean, mm-hmm. it was the crucifix that spoke to him. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I mean, it's a it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. It's a great idea. Like, you know, I'm going to come and live among you and mm-hmm. and feel the way you feel and and give you some insight as to you know, what, what life could be. Mm I, uh, I think there's, maybe there's just been too much institutionalism that that, uh, diluted the message.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One, One of the ones I enjoy, you know, in my, Certainly, still in my position, and when I when I taught it, among the many explanations for the, yeah, certainly that religious art and certainly that that theological idea and Catholicism was uh, Rene Girard's kind of conversion story. You know, an atheist philosopher had a conversion to Catholicism when he he realized what what the crucifixion was supposed to do, how how it changed the world. And according to him, was that we're we're supposed to recognize that you know his, his whole thing was. Religions create sacred violence. You know the idea we we can fix everything as long as we get rid of that guy or that person or that group. Huh. What what the what the crucifixion did to change all that was that sacred violence that religion created. Who it killed was God. So what what we're supposed to do is recognize there's no longer nameless, faceless victims of violence. The you know if we want to know who we're crucifying now, the answer was and always is. God. So our responsibility is to always, when it's happening, recognize wh- who are the people that we're sacrificing in this kind of re- religious violence now, and recognize and translate, oh that's that's God. Whether it's mm-hmm. the, the, the LGBTQ community, whether it's Muslims, right. whether it's immigrants, that his idea was, oh that if if we got that message, that could change the world. So that's again, I guess maybe maybe a lot of my my theology is at that kind of intellectual level that requires a lot of translation and I know it's exhausting to do that if I I I don't go to church very often anymore but I do feel like I'm constantly having to translate when I would take groups of young people we'd often have a debrief afterwards (laughs) to kind of make (laughs) sense of okay what what would you like would you would you hear what what kind of triggered you in, in terms of, of language, art, whatever. So there's, I think for religion to continue, it's going to, rec- people that decide to stay have to do a lot of that. Or they continue to drink the Kool-Aid and stay within the boundaries, you know, you know being set more and more narrowly.
0: Uh-huh, yeah. You know, s- speaking of, of different ways of looking at it, since you're at Fordham, I'm curious if Thomas Berry figures in the religion department there, or is he just kind of somebody who used to be there and a couple of books in the library, but, um, do you have a sense of any of the, um, any of the ideas that he was working on being operative there?
1: No, he's, he's, I can't think of any professorships or chairs that has his name on it.
0: Well, of course that's a matter of money. Yeah. I've worked on enough universities to know that.
1: He he doesn't come up, and certainly in the the, the coursework that I I have, I'm trying to think, there's no one there right now that I know of that they're, he he was into kind of an eco, kind of Franciscan-like theology, correct?
0: Well, he was into the evolution of the universe as being the sacred story. Mm. And he said... Uh, you know, he was a passionist priest, Mm -hmm. and how he stayed out of trouble, I think, with the Vatican was by calling himself a geologian instead Mm. of a theologian. He was very influenced by Teilhard de Chardin and also by his studies in other cultures Mm -hmm. because he was a cultural historian. And he said things like, we need to put scripture on the shelf for 30 years Mm. until we learn what the earth is trying to tell us. Mm -hmm. He said the earth was the primary scripture. Yeah. That, that reminds me of, I think, what,
1: where I have read him recently in a book by Sarah McFarland-Taylor, The Green Sisters, yeah. Spiritual yep. Ecology. You know, yep. That's certainly come across. him. And I mean, just, you know, his exposure to, you know, you mentioned Desjardins, you know, a, a scientist and a Catholic priest, and, you know, that, that recognition of whatever God is, you know, speaking to us in, in ways different than the traditional sources of authority. I think that's an example of the direction that I think whatever all this is going in, and I think it's the direction that many people who are leaving religious traditions are, are doing themselves. In a lot of ways, I think religious leaders are going to have to take note of people like Barry, who you know obviously decided to stay as a priest, but people like Barry that are doing that similar kind of work and mm-hmm. reflection, outside mm-hmm. of, like to go back to that idea of Francis pointing and foregrounding that dialogue. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. we ought to listen to people that are doing this and talking about this outside of the boundaries without us. You know, we, we want to be involved in that conversation, but we're going to have to do that. And when I say we, you know, church leadership or religious leadership, we're going to have to accept the fact that we're no longer the voice. We're just one voice among many. Uh, equal voices, and I think that that is the challenge. The, the, the question of whether religion, as we know it, will die or continue is whether how well it can do that.
0: That's a pretty radical idea, Jimmy.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, and I think it's it gets complicated because you know who who speaks for all of religion, whether it's Catholicism, Christianity. Catholicism is so much more simple, where there's there is this this um, position of the Pope. But even you know there's such diversity within all these traditions. And, you know, there are, there are parish priests that are doing this kind of work like Barry, you know, like you said, off the radar of uh, mm-hmm. the Vatican. So I, all, that's something else I think is interesting about my research in on deconversion, when, whatever it is that's happening, these the, the kind of shifting ground in terms of religiousness in the landscape within the boundaries of religious traditions and without, is that these movements can take place not just taking people out, but also moving people within. So people that still even decide to stay affiliated or still identify, are still being exposed to all these different ways of thinking. Whether they're mm-hmm. scientific, they're Eastern, they're atheist, they're pagan, whatever you know title you want to give them. So people's notions of themselves, their relationship to the world, you know, each other, whatever the the, the notion of, of God is those are changing even within. so I think th- one of the reasons that religion might not totally die is because religion can't help but change also' um, it's, it's changing from the inside just because it it deals with people. The, the people even who decide to stay inside the walls are are also being are also meeting Muslims at work um, they're mm-hmm. they're marrying Jews, they're marrying mm-hmm. atheists. So all that kind of exposure and encounter, you know, across certain borders that used to be really fixed, you know, but as more and more people are marrying people from different religions or different secular versions of religious traditions or marrying atheists, and even people who decide to stay within the boundaries of a religious tradition just because they're human persons and they have these kind of relationships on a daily basis, whether it's in their romantic relationships, in their families, in their professional lives, we're a, we're a, we're porous beings, like where things kind yeah. of go and pass through us. So if these institutions are made up of us, they can't help but slowly change. Um, so I I think even despite some of, I mean I always talk about the Catholic Church because it's one, it's my tradition, it's one I know the best, and it's also just the easiest one to talk about these kind of movements with because it is so centralized, where others mm-hmm. you know, don't have that. So I think you know the Catholic Church is a great example of even something. Like that, the oldest religious institution or corporation there is. Even that slowly changes due to this just kind of natural exposure to differing ideas. It eventually, slowly, it synthesizes into itself because it, it. I mean, for better or for worse, it it uh, is a system that wants to s- sustain itself, so it, mm-hmm. it has to. You know, as you know, I, you know, just in ecosystems. A closed system can't survive. It has, systems do have to in, encourage or invite in some difference eventually just, you know, to to populate it or to...
0: Right. To well, develop. any system involves change mm-hmm. and emer- emergence, mm-hmm. so maybe there's, maybe there's something in that system that uh, will emerge. One of the things of Catholicism that was always so interesting, compared to people I knew who were raised Protestant, that it was—they described it as so much fleshier. Mm-hmm. Because sola, sola Scriptorum doesn't really work, you mm-hmm. know. You have—we're sensual beings. Mm-hmm. We, we, uh, we appreciate art and music and color and everything.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's one of those like those odd dissonances, yeah. They- the sacramentality of the, the Catholic tradition is very affirming and appreciative of the body. But then how do we get all this anti-physical body and sexuality stuff? I know. I mean, I, I, one of the many things I think is interesting about studying religion is that oftentimes we, in looking at the texts and doctrines and traditions, you you find out more about the people who were writing them at that time than, yeah. you know, any kind of higher right ideas. So, you know, there were just like to say, there there are lots of other cultural reasons that kind of influence you know certain you know anti body or anti sex, um, well ideas that are certainly informed by religions. But you know that's that's there's a there's an odd intersection of things. And think. a
0: lot of them were city boys. A lot of mm. the you know the church fathers and stuff were city boys who mm-hmm. were just you know sitting at their desk all the time trying to keep mm-hmm. from being the horn dogs they were, mm-hmm. like uh, like uh, Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there is that conflict. Mm-hmm. And some, some
1: would say it comes from that kind of Greek duality, which the Christian church would mm-hmm. like that. There's, there's heaven, there's earth, there's male and there's female. These, there are these two things that should never meet. You know, there's spiritual and there's the, the corporal that, you know, right. one's good, one's bad. Like that, 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 that very simplistic way to look at the world that, you know, I think the best parts of lots of religious traditions and even, you know, science points out, you know, that kind of independence or separation is, is a real real myth. You know?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's in the secular world, mm-hmm. you know, the Cartesian dualism is certainly in the secular world as mm-hmm. well. So we can't lay it all on, mm-hmm. on religion. It's been part of our uh, intellectual evolution. And we're just now starting to get mm-hmm. information to the contrary. Mm-hmm. So
1: I remember hearing something about, you know, you know Descartes that, you know, wouldn't it have been nice if, he's, if he sat there a little, a little longer? Like, he's right. He was a young man, really myself i'm gonna sit here until i figure something out what if what if he sat here sat there just long enough to instead of saying oh i, I think therefore i am oh i'm hungry I am. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was joking around with somebody in a in a previous interview you know there's that thought experiment if mm-hmm. you could go back in time who would you kill mm-hmm. <laughs> And people inevitably say, oh, Hitler, you know, I'd go back and I'd get Hitler, you know, and save everybody a lot of suffering. I would go back and take out Descartes. Mm. I would. And I think if I took out Descartes, the other people wouldn't have to take out Hitler. Mm -hmm. I just think anyone who tortures dogs, not good. It's not good. But yes, I agree. If he had just wanted a sandwich or something, we, we would be on a different cultural tra- trajectory. <laughs> right,
1: right. But I, I, I really like your this. You pointed out just like the word this 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 time that you know we were talking about language. But I think language is indicative of you know this potential of something you know new happening. Something else I, I certainly hope um, comes out of all this is not that we'll come back together and have some kind of consensus. I think I alluded to like I I. I've, I think that kind of multiplicity is more realistic and truthful to whatever, the you know, certainly is truthful to the world we're actually living in, sure. but that we can have some kind of mutual exchange or mutual respect and a real dialogue and listening to all the different perspectives on the sacred, the divine or the lack thereof. You know, mm-hmm. so I, certainly my, my goal and my research, as I am situated in this kind of place on the outskirts in between Religious tradition and then this this community that I feel accountable to, is I I, I do want them both to know each other a, a bit more because I think they both have something to learn from each other. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, certainly religious leadership oftentimes talks about you know the, this community or the people that are leaving the nuns, et cetera, this kind of a pejorative sense or that treats them as objects that they need to come back. Or I, I I think that's missing something very important. So again, like my whole was just hope hope in the research is just kind of making the case that this group in particular, but all these groups, as we recognize more and more that inter interreligiousness or interfaith or inter-nonreligious, you know, dialogue really is 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 going to be is the direction all this is going and should be going. You know, because mm-hmm. the permanent, not just difference, but the permanent difference of, of postmodernism in our world is, is, I think, you know, a a positive reflection of, you know, the the world we live in.
0: Amen. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's been really interesting talking with you because I don't talk to that many people who are actually kind of in the religious Mm -hmm. field, so to speak and seeing this level of attention and kind of fluidity to it is, uh, it's just, it's fascinating. It's well, really interesting.
1: I, I take that as a, as a compliment. Thank you. I, I've also really enjoyed our conversation. So you know, this is the kind of conversation I, I hope happens more between these groups that oftentimes see themselves as, as so opposed. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are we all looking for? And, mm-hmm. you know, and... And why isn't it just okay to find it in different ways? You Mm -hmm. know, it's a a wonderful question that we should ask ourselves on a regular basis. Thanks to James Nagel and thank you for listening. Where do you think spirituality is headed? Did you go through a deconversion? Do you wish Descartes had done a little thinking and then just called out for pizza? You can leave comments on our website. Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on The Big Chew Podcast. You can subscribe to The Big Chew Podcast on iTunes, and you can help us out a whole lot by reviewing The Big Chew on iTunes. The Big Chew Podcast comes out every two weeks. Bye for now.